if you look at the the personality types of the leader, um, like Alexander the Great, or uh, people like Tesla, or some of the very unique people, um, typically had an INFJ type personality um, as their base personality. Where you know Tesla's a really great example because he also grew up in the country. Anybody who is a naturalist, um, another great example, uh, Goddard, uh, the rocketeer. You know he. He wanted to be alone so badly that he's like, I want to get off the planet. And so, you know, what did he do? He designed rockets so that he could leave. Um, and that's kind of the same ideology that I share. Uh, you know, I don't want to be on this planet anymore. But, uh, yeah, you asked about INFJ. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, I do I do think it's it's very interesting that people could could be classified or their personalities. It makes me wonder where I would fit in in that spectrum I wonder if I would be an an uh, INFJ or possibly a different different type. Do you feel that this has helped you in in uh, truth seeking and exploring things that are conspiratorial? Yeah, this is actually one of the most important things that people can do. Um, here, here's the problem with truth seeking, though, and so this is this is why we have to be careful in this broadcast because people are going to be listening to this. And it can influence slash brainwash them if you think about it like that. Okay, and that's that's not my goal here, um, but I will talk about it a little bit. Um, I believe personally, firstly and foremost, that the the truth movement is a very personal experience. You you can't tell somebody what truth is. That's something that they're going to have to seek for themselves, and the answers aren't going to come from an external source. Although. Uh, the evidence that you use to form truth will certainly come from your sense perception, you know, the things that you read, uh, what you put into your spirit, you know, uh, your, your spirit cavity, your personality, um, all the things that you absorb and you make as part of you. That is really what the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator is designed to sort of bring out. So let me, let me just go a little bit into this because you can do this yourself and people that are listening to this can kind of use this as a guide. Uh, to seek the self, because you can't change the world. That is an undisputable truth about the universe. You can't make anybody else do something that they don't want to do, and you cannot keep someone else from seeking what they want to seek, right? This is the nature of truth. This is the truth itself, but it's the nature of truth, as it is defined with our unfortunate syntax. So um, it's an introspective self-report questionnaire with the purpose of indicating differing psychological preferences in how people perceive, right, how we receive the information of the world around them and make decisions. In other words, how we change our own behavior about how we see ourselves in reference to the rest of the world, right? So the MBTI was constructed by Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers. It's based on the conceptual theory proposed by Carl Jung. Um, let's see, concepts, uh, precepts and ethics. Here we go. Um, a type, not a trait. So the MBTI sorts for type, right? We don't indicate the strength of ability because everyone's ability is that that's a truth that people have to seek for themselves. And I'm going to I'm going to kind of end this description here because I really want people to read into this for themselves and kind of discover this on their own without going too far into it. Because if if it's like I said, the truth is a sacred pathway. It's something that we have to do on our own. Um, and it's really what's missing, honestly, in the world uh, among all the adults and even children today 
if you look at the difference between the tribal people that were very successful and didn't have the social problems we have today and what, what humankind has actually evolved into, we are missing this, um, this spirit journey, uh, what, do you, what do you want to call it, um, a coming of age, you know, where each person kind of goes off on their own and says, I have to seek my own path. The uh, German Baptists, uh, incidentally, have a term for this. They call this rumspringen. Um, so if you knew, and if you know any Mennonites, they have something very similar. And basically it's, hey, there's the world's way. There's everything else that everybody else is doing. And then there is a more disciplined way of living life. There's a different way of doing things. And everyone has to decide this for themselves. But the only way to do that is to seek. And so that self-seeking is not like a selfish thing, like I want to be a serial killer kind of thing, um, like the cabal would have us believe. Um, and really what they're trying to kind of paint us in the corner to do, that's their truth, right? That's their disclosure. Um, that's, that's the reason why I'm going to end the conversation about that specifically here, because I'm not here to say this is the way that you are supposed to live. In fact, I believe in freedom and liberty, and I, I joined the United States Marine Corps to make sure that I can protect that right and freedom for every person on the planet. Marine Corps, you're a Marine? Uh, yes, well, I guess you could say I still am. Yeah, once a Marine, always a Marine, absolutely. Yeah, I, I am familiar with that motto. Yeah, since you were a Marine, you're still a Marine. Uh, I'll tell you, 13 weeks of boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina, is a transformative experience. It's one of the reasons why I believe the things that I do in the way that I do, having been subjected to, I wouldn't call it Kabbalistic, uh, but having been subjected to a kind of brainwashing and forming of the youthful mind. Uh, in the same way that the Spartans were formed at a very young age, that it goes it goes back to what I was speaking about earlier about that coming of age. Very interesting. So you're comparing um, the the boot camp, the rigors that you have to go through to become a Marine, with the the uh, rigors of becoming a Spartan warrior. Well, really, you know, it's still the act of survival. Each of us is expected and we expect of ourselves. We know at some point the truth that comes to us at some point. We realize that we're decaying, that we're dying. So what do we do with the time that we have left? You know, and that's that's really what this is about. We're going to dance around this probably this whole conversation. It's going to be great. Did you have and that, that, that's a warrior type mentality. That's a leadership type mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that movie, uh, Full Metal Jacket, where the boot camp situation gets so intense, one guy actually snaps and ends up shooting the drill sergeant. Yeah, and, and so that's an indication of, uh, you could say that Hollywood was kind of putting in a little innuendo there and saying how that system can be perverted and how it can actually turn people into monsters, right? Yeah, definitely. It seems like... Well, one story that comes to mind was the uh, – oh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right – the Abu Ghraib prison scandal in Iraq where the uh, the people that were monitoring the captive Arabs, they, they were abusing them and raping them and killing them and all kinds of horrible things were going on. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it comes down – even that specifically comes down to uh, leadership and responsibility. Uh, and that's a top-down issue. That was – see, what you're seeing there is exactly what, what I witnessed while I was in the United States Marine Corps in the military, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, and it's a leadership problem from the top down. 
What you're actually seeing, believe it or not, with that is not a fault of the military members themselves. What you saw there was an indication of a much bigger disease. You're seeing the symptoms of a sickness. It's like you see that someone is coughing and sneezing, and you say, oh, well, that person has a cold, right? What you are seeing with that abuse in the prison is that the, the military members themselves believe that this behavior is okay because they've seen it happen at higher levels, and that complacency was there, and it wasn't nipped in the bud. That is a very big indicator of exactly what's going on in the sickness and the disease that is happening at the higher echelons of our government. That's like an indicator of the deep state and the cabal itself and the embedment in our military and our military values. And so when you see that, you know, as a military member, you're like, wait a minute, I, I heard all these things and we're supposed to be this good organization. Why is this happening and why am I, why am I being complacent in this and no one's questioning it? Or if you do, you know, it's a no-no. Yeah, one thing that is big, obviously, in the military is following orders. If you don't follow orders, it's considered insubordination, or you could even be labeled a traitor or, or even executed. That's right. Well, the other important thing to remember is, too, that when you join the military, um, you are not working for the President of the United States. Your job is not to serve the President of the United States. It's not to uh, support duly elected members of Congress. In fact, the first thing that you do before you join the military is you swear an oath, which, you know, I took a point to memorize. I, uh, well, I'll, it's, I'll say I state my name, um, do so solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and do bear true faith and allegiance to the same. So help me, um, who, whatever I believe in. You know, in, in my case, it would be uh, God or the creator, a uh, progenitor, or, you know, the uh, designer. Um, and why, why that's important is we're not swearing allegiance to a flag. We're not swearing allegiance to a nation. We're swearing allegiance to a set of ideals and morals that is above a law. Laws are created to support ideals and morals of a given peoples. And so by swearing an allegiance to this ideology, what we're saying is that even if there is a law that comes into effect that hurts the people, if there is a principle that is set that is endangering the people's freedom and liberty, that as a patriot, we are required to stand against that. And that includes activity in the military that we don't agree with, that does not sign with that moral code. Did you witness anything really disturbing? Um, I'll tell you the, the thing that I witnessed that was disturbing the most was um, seeing the, uh, the, the duality in the leadership in the military specifically, where the leaders can do what they want and you're not allowed to question it. And there is this dark behind closed doors, um, do as I say, not as I do um, kind of attitude that you can see reflected on up the chain all the way to the highest levels of um, organization. Uh, I won't go too deep into it, but let me just say that uh, the things that go on in Thailand in terms of like human trafficking um, and the involvement in the sex trade, um, that you can see that reflected in the mentality and the morals of the leadership all the way from the top. And I'm talking about four-star generals on down. And that is something that is not really talked about. It's kind of like the whole Hollywood scandal. But because the because the general is doing it, it's okay for everybody else. But then here's the thing: if you're if you're this lower level, you're this low hanging fruit level. It's like we're going to make an example out of you to keep everybody else in line. 
And so that you'll see that, too. And that that kind of alarmed me because it was like everybody saw what was happening, but nobody was raising the alarm and saying, wait a minute, something's wrong. And uh, when I that was one of the reasons why I ended up getting out was because I spoke out enough and they said, well, we can't we can't have him around. We can't have him, you know, talking about this stuff because it's it's going to expose some things and it's going to um, put some people out uh, that, that are very powerful and well known. And, you know, we can't allow that to happen. Oh, wow. So you actually you actually had some conversations or, or you spoke out in some way that caught the attention of the upper up higher ups. Uh, well, let's say that I got involved because they tried to drop the hammer on somebody and they tried to use the system against someone who was actually innocent. Uh, and they were doing it in a very, very dirty way. And I won't stand for such a thing. And, you know, um, I wasn't a sellout. They, they asked me basically to uh, go on the stand against somebody and say things about people, uh, you know, not just people, but against against another human being and say that this person has done so it's going to be on their record for forever. It's going to follow them for the rest of their life. And I was like, I'm not going to convict them. No, I'm not going to be a part of, of, a, of a hung jury. And when they realized that I wouldn't sell out, that I wouldn't be part of that good old boys club, there's the term I was looking for, the good old boys club, um, that they were like, well, we've got to get rid of him too. And that's exactly what happened. And that my PTSD is not from, what you might expect, because, you know, going going to Afghanistan and seeing the things that I saw, yeah, that's one thing, um, but I expected that. What I didn't expect was when I swore an oath and I had a brotherhood and, you know, I was there and I gave my trust to these people, but then that wasn't reciprocated. And I had to watch my back from people that were supposed to be able to um, make this moral distinction and they were supposed to be part of something good. And here they were against this moral code. Um, basically turning their backs on me, not just that, but basically threatening me in, 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 in the same kind of way. I felt threatened. I was like, well, I'm not even going to be able to sleep around these guys because they, they might actually kill me because they're afraid that I'm going to, I'm going to call them out on their bullshit. And that was, that's where my PTSD is from. And that's, that's what's, I think, the most frightening thing about what the cabal is and what it's, oper- how it's operating is because they're painting us in a corner. And the majority of people are clueless. They don't realize that these these people have this stuff well planned out well in advance and they've they've thought this through so well that they've got everybody sold out to the same tune yeah that is that is pretty scary it it sounds like boy it sounds like uh you may have felt like your life was in danger oh absolutely without question i mean that was i think that was the uh that was the biggest thing about afghanistan was i wasn't worried about um, you know, the Taliban, of course, they did, they did go out and seek to, to get on base and, you know, but generally speaking, I knew that the, the military presence and because of our training and equipment and so on, we were going to be protected. Like if mortar fire came in, you know, we, we were in protected bunkers and we knew what to do. But I'll tell you what you can't fight against is knowing that the people that are supposed to protect you, that have sworn to be your brother and be there, um, if you can't count on them, to not murder you in your sleep because, you know, they're, they're worried that you're going to snitch on them for something that they did wrong. That is, you know, and, and they're opposed to you ethically and morally, and they're not supposed to be. That lack of trust, even though you give that trust, that is, that is really a scary thing to know that you could be assassinated by people that you're supposed to be able to trust. You come to think of it, there was a story 
a number of years ago, there was a, a unit that was uh, chopping off ears and noses. And, and I think the captain or whoever was in charge of that unit, he was encouraging it. And a couple guys want to speak out. And I, I think they're threatening them. They may, may have actually killed a couple of people that kind of shut them up. Yeah, that was that was during Vietnam. Yeah, that happened during Vietnam. That's a real thing. Um, and then that's actually been repeated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that they uh, publicize a lot in the military. They don't want people to know these kinds of secrets. Um, you know, they can't come at, they can come after me if they want, but, uh, the truth is that it actually happens more often than, than is publicized. Uh, a lot of it is around gang and drug related activity that has embedded itself in the military. Once again, because of that corrupted upper level leadership, um, they have a similar thing going on. And so, you know, what monkey see monkey do, you know, if, if they know that the generals and stuff are doing it, we're not, we're not stupid. You know, it's just like our kids, they watch everything that we do and they see what's going on behind closed doors. They know what mommy and daddy are doing, you know, um, and it's the same thing in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give a great example. There was a theft ring that was going on um, in Japan, and it involved four individuals. One of them was a, was a young lady, and three of them were, uh, were gentlemen. And what happened was they, they had figured out their little scheme to steal, and they stole tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff from the base exchanges, which is like a, you know, like a Walmart on base. Um, and they figured out a way to beat the system and not get caught. And there was a drug investigation going on at the exact same time. Um, and in the process of NCIS trying to seek out the people that were involved in the drug ring and smuggling drugs on base because they were running their own little mafia, uh, they ran into a situation where they, they bumped into one of these rooms that had all this merchandise in it. And they're like, wait a minute, this, this person with this rank, there's no way they can afford all this merchandise. What's going on? So they started to ask some questions, and the other three – thought that he was going to squeal on him. So they took him, they got him liquored up at the local, um, the local watering hole, which is an enlisted club on base. It's like going to a bar. And uh, they, they questioned him and they couldn't figure out, you know, cause they got him too drunk if he was, if he had sold them out or not. And so the, the young woman suggested that they uh, murder him. And so they, one of them went and got a saw and they cut his head off while he was still alive. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, the other two, uh, were convicted of murder, and the female got away scot scot free because she made a plea deal, and she was the one who encouraged them. And the reason why I know this uh, is not only because it was in the the base paper, and there was a little blurb about. It. I mean, they barely talked about it. Um, and then, of course, NCIS likes to keep this stuff wrapped up tight because that's an international incident that happened in Okinawa, Japan. Um, and this is what I'm talking about. You know, this is this is war, way worse. If you ever think the government is covering stuff up in the news, trust me, it's way worse than you think because this is just the military, right? And whatever you see in the military is going to be reflected. It, it's going to be ten times worse than the government. So um, this is at the enlisted level, by the way. This is the low level. This is, you know, all these guys were under uh, enlisted level four, which is like, um, you know, being like a manager or a vice president, you know, or like an assistant vice president uh, in a company. Oh, that's like a so an E four. Guys, these guys ended up in the brig, and they were a flight risk. You know, they couldn't leave and go back to the states and even see their family because they were worried because they were so organized in this group that they were afraid that they had connections on the outside that would help them escape. And so they, it would, they, they're what's called a flight risk. They wouldn't let them leave that brig, and they're there for life. They are never going to leave that brig. It's a life sentence for them. They murdered someone. And, you know, what, what happened? actually happened was, and I talked to them, they said, look, this chick sold us out. She set us up, and she basically made us murder our friend, who he didn't ever squeal on us, and she basically got away with the plea because she knew what she was doing. And it was dirty. And I was like, and, and that's not an isolated incident. Females... Believe it or not, um, you know, because it's opportunistic, especially in the military, the way that it's structured, 
there's a duality system, like I mentioned before. There's a different setup for women than there is for men. And it, it isn't supposed to be like that. And they advertise, oh, yeah, no, it's not different. No, no, that's crap. And it's from the leadership down. You know, it's, it's from these organizations that have embedded themselves from the cabal. And they need this kind of chaos to exist so that they can subvert the morals and ethics of the military. And, and the military is the shining example of the United States. It's who provides our freedom and liberty, right? And so when we look at that shining example and we see this, we, we know that it's, you know, that there's holes and stuff in it just because it's not being presented to us. And so that reflects in our society, right? And then, of course, we do the same kind of behavior in society. It's all this parent-child relationship behavior learning. And that's really what all this comes from is monkey see, monkey do. We say, well, the government does it, you know, except, you know, as long as the government doesn't get caught, right? And so there's that expectation that, well, there's a probability that we won't get caught doing the same kind of negative behaviors. And because those negative behaviors are encouraged, and there is no incentive to do a non-negative behavior, that's the reason why we see a proliferate in society and why society is so negative right now. When you were a Marine, how did you feel about the idea of killing another human? Um, you know, this is, I've got mixed feelings about this. Uh, there is a, there's something called Marine Corps orders. And the Marine Corps orders are like a constitution. They're a set of ideas. They're they're words on paper. They're kind of infallible in a way. So they define what something is, right? And in this case, the Marine Corps Order 5500.6 Foxtrot, you can actually look that number up. It's the Marine Corps Order that specifies uh, the escalation of force and the use of deadly force and defines deadly force and escalation of force. So what, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're going against human nature. We are saying that we're going to use a force, um, just like Jesus warned in Gethsemane, right? Uh, those that live by the sword die by the sword. We're using a force to stop an equal force. And when do we use that, right? And it, it, it basically says these are the ethical principles upon which you should base this idea and this, this definition on. And so that is when all lesser means have failed or cannot be reasonably employed, right? And so as a martial organization, for the protection of other people, for their life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to prevent them from being mauled in the case of life, limb, or eyesight, um, to protect property that would would allow other people to misuse that property or misuse information, let's say, for example, that would uh, cause a direct threat, in other words, life, limb, or eyesight to other people, that those are examples of how deadly force is designated to United States military and how we're trained to see deadly force, our kind of education, our college education. In that way, I think that this education needs to be expended, extended to the regular populace, um, but it has to be presented in a very different way because you guys didn't receive the same training uh, and this, see things in the same kind of martial way that the military does. You didn't go to boot camp. You don't see that dichotomy and that, that, that there's something in people that join the military, especially a paramilitary organization like the Marine Corps, that defines them in a very specific way. I had a strong desire, an ethical and moral desire, to understand this relationship, to understand why it would be necessary to use enough force to be able to stop another human being and prevent that person from seeking what they love, right? And so it is possible that someone could exist that would want to destroy someone else's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that is when that force would be authorized, but only, right, and only under the circumstances that um, you could say that uh, 
all lesser means have failed or cannot be reasonably employed. I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second. How do you feel about – did you remember your point or should I continue? Um, I, I never desired to kill anyone. That wasn't the reason why I joined the Marine Corps. Um, I knew that there was a possibility that existed that I may have to be faced with this solution. And when I was faced with this solution, I trusted the fact that I was in an organization of other people that felt similarly to me. And that is more or less kind of the moral direction, the moral compass that I was, that I was involved with, that, um, they stood for something much greater than I, I wanted to understand why would somebody sacrifice? Cause there was also the possibility, the equal possibility that my life, you know, those that live by the sword die by the sword, that my life would also be forfeit to make sure that, uh, other people's lives would not be. And so I was willing to make that sacrifice because I understood how important life really was. I think that's a big distinction in the military too. And that was something I wanted to explore. I wanted to make that a part of myself as an INFJ. It was part of my, my, um, my desire to be, um, oh, what do you call it? An advocate, right? Having grown up in America very, very poor and having seen a part of America that probably a lot of people wouldn't necessarily gravitate to or sympathize with. Um, and I knew that that was going to need a voice someday. And I wanted to, to be able to describe this, even if it was in my memoirs. Or share this idea with other people. And so that's, that's kind of what gravitates people towards the military. It wasn't a desire to, to kill or to be killed. It was a desire to understand the relationship of the value of human action over a given lifespan. Because, you know, like I said, there's this, there's this point in our lives where we realize that we're not going to live forever. And what are we going to do with the time that we have left? And the understanding of the value and veracity of what life is and what it means, not just to me, but to the world. And how can we extend that? How can we make that a, a better situation for the future generations? How can we educate other people without living it ourselves? We have to be that signing example. It's part of that leadership gambit, right? How do you feel about women being in the Marines or being in special forces? I don't have a problem with women being in the military. Um, here's what I have an issue with, that there is absolutely, without question, a dichotomy in the military. There is no G.I. Jane. If you've seen the movie, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the movie, I'll give you a little time. Yeah. Um, in, in the real military, that's not how it works. They have a different standard. They say, okay, men will do um, 20 pull-ups. And if you can't do 20 pull-ups, then, um, you know, that's it. Uh, but women, well, you don't have to do pull-ups. You can do this other thing um, that's called the flex arm hang. And so basically it's like this. You know, you just kind of hang there and there's no real work involved because women's biology is different. It's like, no, 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 no. Look, we in a real situation, a real combat situation, and this happens. It has happened more than once. Um, women are going to be expected to carry their load. Now, not every woman is capable of doing this, which is great. That's exactly the kind of people that we want to attract to the Marine Corps. There's a specific physical component to the military that is required. Now, albeit this is not for every single military organization, like the Navy has different standards for a reason. However, comma, pause for effect. If you are going to lower standards for women, 
you cannot require those same non-martial standards for uh, men. In other words, uh, like non O3, non infantry based job specifications in the military should not be required to have the same physical standards as those that are in a a real military, a martial capacity, right? You could say, well, if the women are allowed to do flexed arm hand, that's great. If they're, you know, they're going to be doing an office job. What do they really need a lot of strength for anyway? Are they going to be good deploying? Well, chances are no. You see, you know, 70% of the military, generally speaking, is support MOSs, support military occupational specialties that support that O3 element, that, that martial element. And uh, I don't have a problem with women being in combat. There is the age-old argument of when a man sees a woman fall in combat, there's something that happens, and that is something that should be feared and definitely dealt with. But I believe, personally, that can be overcome with leadership and training. In the same way that we would revere a great leader like Alexander the Great, we wouldn't want to see him fall in battle, we would sacrifice ourselves to make that not happen, uh, is the same way that we would feel about women, which are the matriarchy. And I think that that would actually make our military a lot stronger if it's actually directed and educated in the right in the right place in the right way, um, but generally speaking, what actually happens in the military is um, there is because of that double standard, we say that there's one percent of male in the military that kind of falls through the cracks and squeaks by, and they sort of you know they've got they, they get fat, um, they they don't take care of themselves, they do the lowest standard possible just to get by. You know, those generally are not the kind of people that we want in the military, but it happens. You know, the filter can only work so well. Uh, unfortunately, I can say from experience, um, this is only from personal experience, having been in Victor units most of my most of my career and having witnessed it personally, that applies to women in a very negative respect. About 1% of the women are badass. They are GI fucking Jane. They're unquestionable in their leadership and their capabilities. And they they will give a man a run for their money any day of the week. But that's 1%. Right. It's the opposite of the male spectrum. And the rest of them are just floozies and they get away with whatever they can because that that dual spectrum is there. And they're allowed to, you know, just trance all over everything because, well, if I say this and I speak out against them, then, of course, I'm going to get charged with sexual harassment and that sort of thing. And that that's really that's a real problem in the military. I, I also heard that a lot of times women in the military, they'll be. Uh, you know, a little bit promiscuous and, and have sex with a, a big number of their um, male counter- counterparts. Yeah, and that's that's just because of the nature of the male versus female, um, you know, problem solution analysis. It's you know, human beings. Uh, it doesn't matter who the human being is. Uh, we we are the most intelligent creatures on the planet. And what do we do for fun? We smash our privates together for fun, for sheer delight. And that's not going to go away in the military. You can, once again, it goes back to Gandhi's laws, right? You can't prevent somebody from doing something that they want to do, and you can't um, force somebody to do something that they don't want to do, right? And so people are going to want to have sex. It's enjoyable. Duh. And it's just, it's more open for women because there is a more pick of the litter. The women can literally get it from anywhere, and then they have a huge masculine pool to satisfy this very primal, um, you know, animalistic urge to be able to fulfill that sexual desire. And that's that's really strongly uh, enforced in that dichotomy in the military, especially. And there's no way to really get away from that, except, like I said, through leadership and training. Uh, if, if you've ever read uh, Starship Troopers or watched the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that's the future. If you want to fix that problem, it has to be something that's not looked down upon. It's something that people are going to do. Um, there have to be some guidelines. There have to be some some barriers. 
uh, to protect the individuals, uh, you know, basically from themselves. Uh, but other than that, I, the military actually, believe it or not, has a pretty good system. They have divorce classes that you have to take before you get married. Um, and it, it does it goes a big way. But I think that there's also a big um, hole, just like there is in our regular society outside the military. Um, there has to be some kind of red pill education where we understand that animalistic side, that uh, that human psychosomatic side where, hey, guess what? We have monkey brains and we eat bananas. And at the end of the day, we, we fling poo, you know, and there's, we have to understand logically that side of the equation. Otherwise, it's going to cause problems. Gordon sure. Peterson talks about this in great detail. Starship Troopers, that's a very interesting movie. Do you think that that is actually going to happen to our society? Will we become like this military sort of whatever you want to call that situation they have in that movie? Let me actually go briefly into this because this is an interesting conversation. Do you know about Robert Heinlein? No. So Robert Heinlein actually wrote that book, Starship Troopers. It's on the recommended reading list for military personnel. I read it, um, and of course I watched the movie. Uh, But Robert Heinlein also wrote another book. Uh, and it's called Stranger from a Strange Land. Have you heard the name of this book? Mm, it sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, it's actually a quote from the Bible. And it's uh, in Exodus. And it's the portion where um, Moses, or Akhenaten, if you want to go into detail, is talking about the Exodus from Egypt. And so he was trained by the priest class, and he was also trained by the uh, ruling class, and so he had a different level of knowledge, a different level of understanding, and a different language that he spoke. So when he left Egypt because he murdered an Egyptian and he wanted to escape the fate that would befall him if they found out that he had done this, and he went and found uh, his future wife, he named his first child Gershom because his child would be like an alien child. He would receive a very special education. It would know things that other children in the tribe would not know. And that's what Gershom means. I am a stranger from a strange land, which is a reflection of his own father, right? This book, believe it or not, called uh, um, Stranger in a Strange Land, written by Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein joined the Naval, Naval Academy during 1929 at the height of the Great Depression. The subject of the book was so controversial that, that the publishers forced him to revise the book and he had to remove a whole bunch of content because it was so so controversial, like there was interracial themes, there was some very strong sexual themes that was involved in this book, and uh, it's kind of like a Brave New World, if you know anything about the book of Brave New World, which I recommend also, um, and it's kind of a future look at if we don't take a better assessment of society and the way that we're evolving and how we're letting technology lead the way, um, if we don't pay attention to whether it's going to lead to progress or regression, this is where we'll end up. And the book Stranger in a Strange Land is about colonization of Mars. And that's all I'll say about it because it's a great book and you really should read it. But uh, it goes further in Starship Troopers, almost like you could say a sequel, where it explores if we don't put a cap on our desire to control, we could end up. Um, causing our own destruction because other species may be keen to our destructive methods and seek to prevent us in the same way that we would use deadly force to protect other people. They would seek to prevent us from destroying them. And so they're more intelligent than we are. They're more organized than we are, but they don't speak our language. So, of course, we don't know that. They come and attack us, but, in fact, that's actually a preemptive attack. And there's no way for us to know that, is there? That's the real theme of Starship Troopers, and it's one of the hidden themes 
that um, that Robert Heinlein actually kind of hides in his in his dichotomy, um, and it's one of the things that kind of should be uh, a, a theme that's kind of taught in uh, intellectual circles about the the subject of the book. And it's a look at exactly where we're going if we don't take a very good look and strong hold, like I said, about whether or not technology will lead to progress or regression. Oops, sorry. I cover a lot of information real fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I forgot to turn my mic on for a second. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that technology is incredibly dangerous to us, or is it is it going to save us all? This is this is right, this is between you and me right now. Well, I guess the listeners too. Um, that is what I'm working towards. That is what my my organization works towards. Um, is to raise awareness, education about exact. We need to be talking about these issues, and this is exactly the reason why we're not talking about it. We're not facing these facts. We're not saying, "Hey, guys, there's a possibility we could literally snuff out our own candle." if we're not careful. And we're walking on that razor's edge right now. Humankind is literally, we're destroying our planet at an unbelievable pace. We're destroying the biodiversity that actually makes the whole planet work. Um, and we don't know the long-term effects of that, do we? There's no way to measure that. There's no precedent in history for this. We can say that things will continue to get worse because we have a historical model that shows that um, uh, ecosystems and economies fail because of the inability of us to assess our own behavior as it applies to an economic and ecological system, if we don't assess whether or not it will lead to regression, guess what it's going to do? It's going to take hold, and then by the time we realize what's gone wrong, it's going to destroy us. Look at the plagues of Egypt as a really great example. I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's very, very green. We have a lot of marine life. There used to be orcas in our waters. Unfortunately, a lot of that life has disappeared because of the Navy, because of pollution. Uh, there's hardly any fish left. You can't fish off the docks. It's really sad and very disturbing. Yeah. And, well, that's, that's just you guys. That's you noticing it, you know, in your lifetime. You haven't even lived, what, 30 years yet? That's a third, roughly a third of your life. Oh, I'm 35. And I want you to, I want you, you know, a lot of people don't take that into consideration because our lives are so short. Yeah, I'm an old man. I'm 35. Well, you're not that old because I, I will be 35 in 2020. Oh, you're 30? Uh, well, I'll put it this way. I'm at least 33. I've, I've made at least 33 trips around our sun. Well, you couldn't be that old if you're recently in the military because they only really take young men. Yeah, I joined right out of high school, right at 18. And can you tell us a little bit more about your organization? All right. So um, I have an organization that was actually started by uh, a friend of mine who is a, a really great thinker as well. Um, it's called The Lighthouse. Um, we, we were trying to find a way to create an organization that wasn't a cult. It wasn't a LARP. Um, we didn't want to have some pseudo-religious organization uh, we didn't want to have a kind of idea that was going to be misused or that could be misused in some way by somebody else. Like the Illuminati, for example, it's been turned on its head. Originally, it was about seeking knowledge and it was about finding the balance between religion and science. And so, of course, that term has been perverted over time. Can the idea of the lighthouse be perverted over time? And I don't think it could ever, ever be perverted. Um, you know, we needed an idea that was, that was pervasive and would stand the test of time. And of course, 
the idea of a lighthouse is to guide people away from calamity, isn't it? Yeah. So that, that's exactly what the organization does. We focus on, um, you know, solutions to global problems. Let me just give an example of one real quick. Um, the one that I'm working on uh, right now is uh, I'm, I'm designing a software, a very specific kind of software, and without going into too much detail about it, essentially it's a terminal operation software. It's a way that everyone can interface with their computer, and their computer becomes a secure element that is 100% untouchable by an outside element unless permission is given. In the same way that our mind is our own permissive element, and it's the monad, and nobody can actually read our own minds, right? Um, the problem that we have, and it's a really dangerous one, is that we've got all this technology, and it's all dependent on these core elements. And the core elements, because they were designed by humans, there's a backdoor. There's a way to take advantage of this system that's been designed, and it could be done by a very clever person or a very clever group of people. And if it hasn't been done so yet, that they will do it, and uh, it's kind of a rush right now kind of like Alexander Graham Bell to invent the telephone, except this is more like a protective kind of element to make sure that um, individual freedom online um, and on these devices is not circumvented by a greater system that could use that to control the populace. Are you, and, a, are uh, you a programmer? That, what's that? Are you a programmer? Um, I would describe myself as a cyberneticist. But yes, I, I am a programmer on, you know, kind of on the side. It, it's part of, it comes with a bag. You can't make robots if you don't know how to program them. Yeah, you'd have to be a pretty smart dude to be able to do that. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Your word's humble. Well, that's pretty impressive that you've uh, not only started this organization, but you're actually a little bit of a computer genius. Um, really, I would say that I, I'm more like a naturalist in the same way that Tesla was. See, genius just comes from a, from a capacity for curiosity. That's what I believe, personally. And anyone has the ability to be, uh, to be curious, but not everyone explores their own capacity, their own gift for curiosity. And I was just, I guess you could say I was, I was gifted in the fact that I was allowed, I was able to, it was, it was made conducive for me to be able to explore my curiosity and uh, where my curiosity took me. And to me, the real magic was the natural side of what allowed all of this to kind of take place. That I, I explored the naturalism behind the ideology of the progenitor or mm -hmm. the designer. I believe personally, you know, in, in a, uh, a designed element universe, in other words, that this is not all just a, a coincidence that someone designed this. this. This is here. It's made for us to observe and to enjoy um, and to kind of question in a way. And that is, that's, that's where I'm at is I've started to question the element that allows me to question these elements. Where does the source of my thought come from? And can I stand outside of that, observe it, and take that observation and put it into practice? And that is the idea of cybernetics is sort of, in a way, um, painting the painter's muse. Uh, somebody came along and they, they invented something really fantastic. They wrote this really fantastic autobiography. I read the autobiography and I'm like, oh my God, this is an incredible work. How do I make something that's like this, right? And everyone's just trying, in a way, we're all these artists and we're trying to copy a facet of this incredible magnum opus that was created by some other really fantastic artist. And so none of us really have the ability 
to um, to create our own ideas or to create our own anything for that matter. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can attempt. We can make this attempt, and that's I believe that's part of the the purpose of the design of life. Um, but that's that's more or less kind of the drive behind cybernetics because I realize once you know the same that I described about the Marine Corps that if if we are endowed with these incredible powers, which we really are, every human is, everyone has the capacity to, to be the kind of genius that I am. It's not some special gift that no one can achieve that happens every, you know, it has happened every once in a while, just as a matter of chance, I believe. But everyone has the capacity to be able to seek this. Um, and that is, that is the thing that we have been, if you want to, if you want to call it a truth, that is the kind of thing that we have been, that's been hidden from us for a very long time. And it's a, it's a weapon. It's not just a tool, it's an incredible weapon. And it goes back to the age-old dichotomy of the, the seeking of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the knowledge itself that's bad. It's what can be done with it. So I realized this kind of early on, and I said, okay, how do I seek this knowledge in such a way that I can pass it down like a message in a bottle um, so that if mankind ends up attempting to self-destruct or something terrible happens – we can start back over and accelerate back to this point so we can make the proper choices the next time, right? We can kind of learn as a cautionary tale. And that's where my goal is, is kind of centered around is um, my legacy. What I'm going to leave behind is everything that I've started to seek. And it culminates in faster than light travel, which I believe personally, if I do my job really well, that mankind in about 50 to 80 years, will be ethically and morally capable of accepting responsibility to be able to leave our solar system on vessels that travel faster than light all over the universe. What do you think of black budget technologies, anti-gravity, invisibility? Do they have this stuff? Uh, This is what I'll tell you. Um, Number one, I don't trust uh, organizations that call themselves government. Notice that I didn't say I don't trust the government. Uh, the government is an idea. It's words on paper. It's the organizations of individuals that are misusing the government. Now, this is what I'll tell you. Um, the researcher that discovered nickel titanium dropped off the map after he discovered it because he realized that the Navy was never really going to use it for anything except for weapons. Uh, the same for pretty much any really remarkable technology that has come to the civilian sector from the military, including the Internet. Um, and it's, it's, it's Philo Chief Farnsworth is a really great example. Television is, is being used as a psychological weapon all over the world, in fact. Uh, and this is, this is kind of why he didn't support uh, research into and furthering his fusion-type uh, technology, because he knew that the military was going to misuse it and abuse it. This is the real reason why the military does not have, because they're cabal-driven. The cabal cannot create anything new. Their focus is only on control and power and seeking that power. If you have enough focus, which they do, and that's why they're so successful, but they don't have enough focus left over at the end of the day to be able to create something new. They don't know how to do that, and they don't know how to go about planning to do that. So that's why um, people like us exist uh, that are able to create something new. And so if you think about these black budgets and why we say, well, does this technology exist? Doesn't, doesn't this technology exist? I'll tell you, if it existed, the government would already be using it against us in the same way that we knew about the atomic bomb. 
So if they have anti, they, they, I'm sure that they want our neighbors, the Russians and so on, to believe that we have this super advanced technology, and that's been leaked to the public. But the truth is that they're being paid by money, and the money is debt based, and so a lot of these scientists and so on are receiving these huge budgets to basically sit around and and continue to fail at experiments because that's how science works nowadays. Science isn't based on a, it's not based in a success based model. It's based in a failure based model. Is the government working with aliens? Um, you know, I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't believe that the government is working with aliens because if if you think about all the possibilities that exist in terms of logic, why would an alien organization work with a government? They could just simply use cloaking technology, um, live among us, kind of like in the movie uh, They Live, um, and then just subvert the population. Uh, what, what, uh, I think there's a... There's a there's a TV show that came on. It was a series. Uh, it was like Z or Y or uh, something like that. And it was the same kind of concept. The aliens had subverted the population. They were they were in these invisible ships. Uh, they were lizard like people. And so they had basically taken over society um, from the v. outside. Was v, that V V for Victor? V. There you go. Yeah, I knew it was at the end of the alphabet somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's a really great concept. But if that was the case, once again, we would still know about it, right? We would be aware of it. Um, and there's no way to really hide that from the population. Remember, like I said, we're like kids. We're watching mommy and daddy. So once again, this is the cabal's disclosure. It's a way for them to get everybody focused away from, from making any positive changes in society um, and keep them focused on the game that the cabal is playing so that it makes it easy for them to manipulate human beings. It's all programming. It's all social behavioral programming. That's really all. Everything is, every tactic the cabal uses, it's got their fingerprints all over it. And it's real easy to figure it out. That's that's the reason why the Lighthouse, um, which I mentioned before, we have this organizational idea that we've been working on for a while. It's called Second Renaissance. Um, and that, you know, like I said, we were trying to seek something that wasn't cult-based. It wasn't religious-based. Uh, you know, it, we didn't want it to be, you know, something that could be perverted in the future. And so the Renaissance happened after the Dark Ages when people realized well, hold on, the wool's been pulled over our eyes, we're waking up, and then suddenly they have access to knowledge and all the incredible things they do with it. Yeah. And so the second renaissance is obviously the second iteration of that, and of course because of the software and the things that I'm working on and the organization is working on, um, you know, that will really accelerate things and allow this to kind of happen in a very positive direction. Uh, sorry, I got, I got off topic. What would what, what, you ask me? Oh, I just asked in, in general if the government work is working with aliens but let me ask you a different question yeah i i don't i don't think that the government's working with aliens and those are the reasons why i believe that uh because if that was the case um like i said it would be it would be much more widespread um even in the event you know that there are citizens that uh have these close encounters in fact i went to middle school um one of my algebra teachers in middle school in the sixth grade she was a contactee that's a real thing she even told us us students right there in, in class and everything and so that was a big impact on my life because I was like, hmm, this, there must be something to this, you know. Um, I, I don't, at this point, I don't have enough information. I don't have enough factual information to say definitively one way or the other that aliens exist or don't. But if they did, um, there's a reason why we're not hearing from them. Uh, and I believe that that is because uh, we're too busy killing each other. And uh, if they do have an advanced technology, then it's because they didn't have this kind of conflict or they evolved past this kind of conflict in their civilization and they know better than to uh, help and breed a civilization that can't figure out how to get past its own internal conflicts to evolve to that state. 
Make sense? Sure. What do you think of the whole flat earth thing? Um, flat earth is uh, basically what you're seeing is a consequence of withholding information. Um, the, the Catholic Church, uh, the Illuminati, all these organizations that have been withholding information, going back to the, the, um, the Library of Alexandria being burned by the Pythagoreans, uh, my theory, by the way, uh, they, they are basically, they're basically a symptom of the disease of the system that we've been dancing around this whole time. The flat earthers uh, say the things that they say, and they believe the things that they believe because they know that there's something wrong with the system, but they can't put their finger on it. They're like, look, there's a hole. There's a, there's a loophole here. There's a problem in the law. There's a problem in this flawed logic. And look, we're pointing it out. We know that there's a problem here. You know, maybe some of it's true, but how do we, how do we really get around it? Obviously, we're being lied to, right? And in a way, they're very, very right, and people should be paying attention to them. But in another way, they're kind of wrong, too, because they don't have all the facts, right? They want to pretend like they know everything in the same way that Q and QAnon does, um, and they're kind of cult-like in this way. Uh, that whole groupthink mentality is actually very degradative in the ability because what, you know, what if there's information that they possess, that they present that's very valid, especially about gravity and some of the things that they do, some of the arguments that they present that are very logical, very well thought out and extremely intelligent, okay, because they're, they're saying there's a problem with this way of thinking. Um, <clears throat> they're kind of muddying the water by going to too great a length and saying the earth is flat. So now everybody thinks that they're just a bunch of nutcases, right? So, you know, there's if you want to spread a message in kind of a way, they're a cautionary tale and they're saying, okay, well, there's something wrong. You know, people are talking about it, but what's the real skinny? What's the real truth? What's the real how are how are we using what's in this pan to sift for the real gold that's at the bottom of the river? That's what I think about the flat earthers, generally speaking. As somebody that's into computers and programming what do you think of the hacker group Anonymous? Um, here, it's a mixed bag because with, with Anonymous, it's the same problem as um, uh, the Illuminati that I mentioned before. <clears throat> You're going to end up with two sides of that coin. You're going to end up with people that are wearing the mask that are claiming to be Anonymous in the same way that there are people that claim to be Cicada, Cicada 3301, and, you know, Defango's come out and he's said all this stuff about this organization that, you know, they're they're not the real cicada or whatever. And, you know, that's that happens in the anonymous uh, group as well. And it's it's a real problem. Um, but it's it's not the anonymous problem. It's, it's a problem with the individuals and the problem of the people that are kind of following it almost like a cult. Uh, they, they don't they don't look far enough into it. They don't do enough research and, and say, OK. Are there are there traits that you can see that are commonalities between these individuals that are benevolent and are truly um, uh, oh what's the term altruists the 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 kind of anonymous that are altruists at heart that that really have the best interests of the people in mind that are really fighting for liberty and freedom and then you know there's of course the NSA agents that are posing as anonymous trying to gather people up and get them to get them caught in things. Um, and there's other organizations that are misusing people, et cetera, like uh, Quinn Michaels um, and his group. Uh, you know, there, it's it's rampant. It, it's it's a problem system wide. It's systemic. But generally speaking, anonymous, like the United States Marine Corps, kind of attracts a certain kind of person with certain skills and certain morality. Um, but so generally speaking, I believe in the anonymous movement. 
but um, it's being abused and misused. And I think that that's it's a shame because now anonymous people that are working hard have to waste their time redoubling their efforts and kind of seeking out these uh, these scabs and peeling them back and exposing them. And that's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of resources and it takes away from their ability to be able to actually protect and serve and do the things that they really want to be doing. And, you know, there's a concerted effort in this, obviously, uh, in, in our group, in our organization. And that's why we started the lighthouse and kind of the direction that we're going, because we can we can foster anons and we can help them with resources uh, to help them, you know, move forward and do really incredible things uh, and and keep them kind of away from that negative mentality, because not every time you hear the word anonymous do you think of necessarily positive things in the same way that every time you, you see the police organizing in public, you're like, well, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Something might be going down. Um, so, you know, in some in some facets, like November, uh, uh, the 5th of November, for example, the Guy Fawkes Day, uh, there are people that take that too far in the same way that there are people that go to rallies for Trump or or Hillary Clinton or anything else and they get violent and they get stupid. Um, you know, that goes back to that cult mentality, that herd behavior. And it's going, any organization is going to attract that kind of people. And I mentioned that actually before in the dichotomy in the military, you know, where you've got those one percenters that are just kind of dragging along and they're just there as, as a bandwagoner. This happens a lot more outside the military because the morality and the structure is very different for humankind than it is for like a military or a martial organization. What do you think about people going out there and physically protesting? Um. How do this is this is a really good question because the the answer to this is not really simple. It's not really well defined, and the, the biggest reason for that is that uh, there is a lot, and I mean a, a tremendous amount of information out there that exists. There's so much information that how do you go about? Um, like let, let's say that we employed every human being on the planet, and their job for the rest of their life, for the rest of their living uh, time on Earth was just to parse information that already exists, like in books, periodicals, etc., mm-hmm. to gather that information, shorten it, right, and then pass it to the person, one person over from them, in a big, giant line. And how long would it take for mankind to catch up to the information that we've already created? By the way, we're still creating new information as that happens. And you see the problem, because now we have way too much information, and there's access to this information, and of course, because of the differing opinions of the people, the way they were raised, their ideas, their dichotomy, all of that, it affects the way that we define that information and those traits. So um, with protests, it's the same kind of problem, isn't it? Because you get a bunch of people together, and while they're generally united behind a kind of idea, um, that idea isn't necessarily well-defined. There isn't a real vision behind it. So it has a problem where probably, you know, because of the cabal mostly, it's been abused to a system that now doesn't actually perform the function for society that it once did or should. And that's the real problem with protests. But the the solution is uh, much better organized protesters and much more intellectual protesters to use the system of protest as the way that it was intended to be used to inform and educate. And uh, that's that's really difficult to do because now we've got a same situation to the – to the anonymous problem where there's people that don't believe in anonymous because they know that there's people in anonymous that do bad things. And it's also compounded by the fact, you know, that uh, there's organizations um, like the KKK or the Man Love Boy Association uh, that do protests. And so, you know, you're, you're wary of certain organizations. You're afraid of those organizations because 
What if you're supporting an organization that's bad, right? And that's one of the reasons why people don't vote, and it causes a bunch of problems in society. This, believe it or not, is actually a tactic of the cabal, and they intend for this to happen. They need for people to become apathetic, um, to lose faith in the system, and to kind of vote the system away so that they can take better control. And that's, that's, that's the real issue. That's the terrifying truth behind what is going on with protesting, not just in the United States, but the world over. It's a system that I believe just needs just one little tweak. And the tweak to that system is that instead of a protest, it needs to be a celebration. Because a protest is saying that there's something bad that's happening and we need to do something about it, whereas a celebration is a way to take that bad thing that we're trying to report and say there's something good that came of it. In the same way that there was a celebration when they tore down the Berlin Wall. That is the future of, of viral um, progression behind uh, any kind of protest that you want to have some kind of progress behind. So, like, let's say, for example, um, you know, I, I have an organ. I, <clears throat> I'm trying to organize an event uh, in February, and it involves uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation and uh, children that are very, very sick. And so they might not have the opportunity to uh, celebrate their birthday, and they might not live that long. And so why is it that we're spending millions and millions of dollars on war when one of those kids could be looking up at the stars at night and saying, hmm, you know, you know, I wonder. And they might they might be the next Goddard. They might be the key to some special technology that we haven't even conceived of yet. And why are we spending trillions and trillions of dollars on war and killing each other and, and basically destroying our, our possibility at giving birth to a progeny that will save us and become our salvation uh, why are we why are we going to war instead of focusing on curing children and child diseases that are literally wiping out our greatest single investment in human history, uh, which is our children? And so let's have a celebration. Let's let's make a birthday party for them and let's make it so widely publicized that we can get some real, real support behind it. That's how a protest should be used and then make it like a world record, you know, uh, event. And that, that's I'm actually planning a number of events leading up to uh, the election in 2020. And that's one of them. And so, you know, that, that, that's really how protesting could be used and could be, and, you know, I would love to coordinate with other people to make this kind of stuff happen. Because I think that that is the most exciting part of an evolving organization of human beings is that we don't have to be hum and glum about everything. The news always teaches us to be afraid and we can break that cycle. And that's that's really where uh, protesting can actually change. Um, and, and how I feel about protesting in general. I don't think that just going out and beating the streets um, and then saying, look, look at this bad thing that's going on, because people don't. That's why they're going to ignore it. Nobody wants to know what's bad is going on in the world. Who wants, who wants to be part of that party? Who wants to be part of the pity party? Nobody. But if you're throwing a birthday party, right, and you've got the world's largest cake ever made by human beings, it's like, look at what humans can accomplish. Look at, we can, look at what we can do when we organize and, and when we put our minds to it. And that's really what, what you know, uh, protesting should be all about. And what do you, speaking of the upcoming election in 2020, what do you think of our current president, Donald J. Trump? Um, well, I'm not going to speak badly about the president because that's unprofessional uh, and it's, it's not really helpful. Those kinds of, those kinds of things are uh, really childish. And it's one of the reasons how you can tell um, if a politician is really worth their ilk or not. Um, you know, if, if they're going around bashing somebody else and saying that they're this and they're that, I'm not going to say anything negative about, about Mr. Trump. I'll, I'll tell you what I know to be true. Uh, Donald Trump is a racehorse. Now, hold on. I'm making a comparison here. Um, 
he was he was born a racehorse. He was bred a racehorse from two parents that were also winning racehorses, right? And so everything that he has been entrained with is about that track. And I'm telling you what, when you take that crop and, and you hit his flank, that boy runs. And sure does he run fast. And all he knows is the track. And he's good at it. You bet. You can put your money on it. Because I'll tell you what, he's a billionaire. And it's not by accident. So in, in that respect, he's, he's very awesome. But in another respect, he's very dangerous. Because someone that has a lot to lose like that doesn't want to lose it. And it makes them very, very easily manipulatable. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Do we need our country run like a business? If the answer is no, then Donald J. Trump is not the best president after 2020. But that's not something for me to decide. That's something for the American people to come to a decision on. That's something they're going to have to be educated about and they're going to have to think about. And they're not. No one's told them exactly what's going on. They're absolutely uninformed. They have no clue that this guy, he's not running it like a traditional government has. And that's, that's the reason why he's successful. He's doing something new and something different, right? Um, but that's not going to work forever. Once the newness kind of wears off and people get settled in, they're going to be like, okay, that's great. You know, we're on this really great path, but what's next? You can't keep running it like a business because you're just going to run it into the ground. Because every business is designed literally to fail. We don't want our country to fail. We're going to have to figure out a way once we, once, once this momentum kicks in on how to fix things and actually, you know, go about doing some real work, right? Not just building a wall that we know we're going to have to spend a ton of money to maintain, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's not, that's not a good business plan. So, um, what I, what do I think about Trump? I think he's doing a fantastic job. I think that he is a great businessman. I think that he's, he's pretty smart. Uh, I think that he's definitely underplayed by the mainstream media, obviously, for very good reasons. Um, but I also believe that uh, there's, there is a possibility that he could be like an, an unwitting Manchurian candidate, meaning that it's very easy to manipulate him and get him to do certain things. If you can manipulate the market in a specific way, you could get him to um, kind of react, right, because he's a reactionary animal, you know, just like any racehorse on a track. You know, he sees another horse coming up by his flank. He's going to act a certain way. He's going to move closer to the inside. And if they know that that's what he's going to do, that means they just manipulated him and he doesn't realize it. What does your gut tell you? Is the American he... people won't realize it. They're going to be on the bandwagon saying, yeah, Trump, MAGA, MAGA, right? And they're going to be waving their, their hands in the air, and they're not going to realize the danger that they're in because they can't be informed fast enough. What does your gut tell you, Alexandros? Is Trump a puppet to the cabal, or is he legitimate? Um, my gut tells me, okay, not to trust somebody whose God is paper currency. Hmm. That's what my gut tells me. He works for money. He works for a paycheck. If you work for a paycheck, guess what? That rules your life. You are afraid to not get it. You believe in your heart of hearts, in your belief of beliefs, that that is God, that it is what makes the world go round. And that's Trump in a nutshell. He believes in the power of money. He thinks that money is going to save mankind. It's not. Money doesn't save mankind. Mankind created money. So therefore, we can create the solution right, that gets us out of this money problem. Money makes people act funny. Uh, I wouldn't even say that. I, I think that it's a matter of programming. Um, you know, it's been around. It's a convention that we created a very long time ago. It's had many generations to sink in. And the individuals, the Kazarians, the Rothschilds, et cetera, 
Uh, they've had many generations to be able to look at the cause and effect. They've been able to poke us, record what happened, right? And then it's just a market trend of behavior. And so they just manipulate that behavior a little bit each time, and they're able to get a different result. And we don't even we don't even pay attention because we don't have enough resources and we don't live long enough and we're not organized well enough, right? Because it's just one small organization of people, right? And they're running the rest of us like like a bunch of cattle. Um, and that's that's exactly what we are to them. But that's that's how money manipulates people is that we've been led to believe we've been programmed, if you will, for a very long time into believing that money is this thing that it isn't. It's not that the money forces people to do something. It's that we believe that money is associated with, um, uh, oh, money is associated with, with value. And uh, money is not value. Money is a thing. Things are not valuable. What's really valuable is human action. You cannot put a price on human action. What can a human do? What can a human create? Humans create television. Humans created programming. What can you do with programming? You can do anything with programming. Any problem that you can solve with language, with human language, you can also solve with programming. True fact. And so money didn't do that. Humans did. Money was the grease, right? So if I take a wheel and I try to push that wheel down a metal track, you know, there's going to be a little bit of friction. But if I take some grease and I grease up that, that wheel or I grease up that track, what's going to happen? It's going to slick and it's going to slide, right? So money was a great tool that allowed us the ability to accelerate things forward, but we never looked, once again, it goes back to that conversation we had about progress and regression. We didn't look forward enough because we weren't able to, to say, hey, is money going to get us what we want? And when we get it, can we wean ourselves off of this technology to prevent something bad from happening? That is the theme behind Starship Troopers, behind um, you know these other books that I talked about, some other things that I talked about, is that we have the ability to create these things that make our lives accelerate faster and get us to another point. But we have to sit down. We have to have this discussion and say, wait a minute, when we get to where we're going, how do we get ourselves off of this cocaine? How do we get off the cocaine train? Because that's really what money represents. It's like this, this addiction that we have. We think that it's the world and it's not. It's just an idea, just like anything else. I mean, eventually even the constitution, even the ideas of, of our language are going to melt away to the tides of time. Our language is going to evolve. It's going to change. We're going to create new things um, that will allow us to be organized better. And, you know, things that even I can't imagine, you know, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, that's, that, we're talking more than 2,500 years in the future now. Go ahead. Let's explore the other end of the spectrum. What do you think of socialism slash communism slash Marxism? Yeah, so um, let's let's look at uh, Marx, Karl Marx, and look at his perspective on life, right? In the same way that I have a different way of looking at things because I was in the military, having been in the Marine Corps, um, and I see the world through a different set of eyes, through, through leadership and these kind of examples, it's a kind of idealism, a kind of programming. The same way Karl Marx looked at the world, right? He saw the world as this perfect organization because he believed in the principles, the morality that actually made this organized religion, this organization, work and make progress. He believed in that. And he believed in it so strongly that he thought, well, this is just going to proliferate and things are going to get better. Right? Without, without of course, having the perspective and realizing that all these negative, terrible things were happening behind the scenes, he still had faith in that system. You see? He was brainwashed. He had that groupthink mentality. 
So um, socialism and communism are the same kind of things. They're these ideas, these technologies that we've invented, but we, we didn't really assess where that was going to take us. So let's look at communism and socialism, because really they end up in the same place. Um, <clears throat> socialism is communism, and communism is socialism, but really what you're doing is you're, 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 you're looking at a zebra. You're saying, well, it's, it's a white horse with black stripes. And then the other person is saying, well, it's a, it's a black horse with white stripes. Um, it's the same thing. It's the same animal colored differently. And really what it comes down to is utopia. All right. What we're dancing around is the idea of utopia. What is utopia? A utopia is a we're going to define it right here. Clearly, plain as crystal. Utopia is a a well-defined, linear, closed system without change. Right. So let's let's try to, to picture mankind as a utopia. Um, mankind as a utopia would be Adam and Eve. Two humans. There's only enough in the system to provide abundance for those two human beings without them having children, without them proliferating on the whole planet. And the planet is able to heal itself, right, and able to proliferate in such a way that it's always creating new diversity and new life. Because there's only enough humans on the planet, because we're the apex predator, to be able to consume enough resources for the Earth to be able to, you know, Recore, recoup those resources, and then, of course, you know, spit back just a little bit out more each year, right, that goes by, each rotation around the sun. Um, that is the idea of a utopia. Can we achieve, can we effectively achieve a utopia? And the answer is no, right? It's a pretty obvious no, and it doesn't take a scientist or a physicist or a genius to figure this out. So um, nobody is going to want to give up what they have now. No socialist wants to live in a socialist society. They will very quickly pack up their bags and say, this is cool, this was fun, but, uh, you know, the vacation's over and it's time to go back to the real world because I, I want my luxury and I want what I want, right? We go back to Gandhi, right? You can't force somebody to do something they don't want to do, and you can't keep people from doing something they want to do. They've already been programmed. They already know that there's better things. So even if you could, let's say theoretically, um, pull off an M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, right? And you could get the adults to play along for a couple of generations long enough to brainwash everybody into thinking that this is a perfect way of life, like the German Baptists, for example, um, or the, uh, the Amish, for example. Even if you could initiate something like that, it's still not a true utopia, is it? Because they still have a hierarchy. They still have a ruling class in a way, right? And it's not completely like Adam and Eve. And so how can you digress to that, that, that organization level from this much, much higher organization level? And the answer is, effectively, it's not achievable. And it's just simple logic and deductive reasoning that can get you to this conclusion. But, of course, you could mathematically prove it out on paper, and it comes down to um, closed systems and how much resources are available in that system and the need for those resources. So that need is actually greater than what the Earth can provide because we, we understand the law of conservation of mass and energy. The Earth can only produce so much. And because there's enough diversity on the planet that it needs most of those resources. Uh, and then, of course, we're the other element. How many humans are left? Well, we have way too many. So that's why socialism and communism will always lead to a divergence in the population. And it will always lead to destruction because the, the uh, idea to achieve this is so strong, right? Because it's an ideology that we will literally, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We will make it come true. 
And so do we want to kill off most of the population to, to achieve an Adam and Eve-like status? Is that a wise idea? Well, obviously no, right? We're opposed to this idea. That's why we're having this conversation, because there are people out there that really want to initiate this. They want to destroy the population. They want to have control. And, and really, when it comes down to it, you know, in the same way, they don't want this either. They know that that system is not sustainable. Even if they hit the reset button and send us all back to the Stone Age, even if they blow everything up and and live in these bunkers underground, that they don't have the ability to be able to create the new scientists, the new chemists, um, the new machinists and stuff that will be able to get us back to this point all over again because those guys are going to be all gone. Alexandros, I do want to get into this whole idea of the elite and um, depopulating the earth potentially, but would you mind if we took a quick 10-minute break? I just need to step outside and and we, and then come back in, and I've got plenty more to talk about with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, and since we're on Skype, you can just stay on the line or you can hang up and I can call you back, but I'm going to play some music and I'm going to head outside and pop right back in. Actually, it'll take about 10 minutes. Hello and welcome back to End of Days Radio. This is Daniel, your host. Alexandros, are you there? I most certainly am. Excellent. Good to be with you. Excellent. Good to be with you as well, good sir. But why don't we go ahead and pick up where we left off. Alexandros, is this evil elite cabal, these so-called Illuminati, are they planning to kill us all? Um. Yeah, they're definitely... Okay, so, so let's put it this way, right? They, they are converted to Judaism, and so that means that they have this pre-programmed belief that there is an end of the world, has to be, either it's brought about by man or um, brought about by aliens or, you know, whatever it is that they choose to believe in, um, and they're, they're going to try to drive the train that direction, aren't they? And that's what they believe. And so if, if you don't understand... You know, that's, that's really what's going on. Revelation is more or less like a, uh, like a warning to the rest of the world or a guidebook for them in their case. And they're using that. Um, that's how they plan to actually execute all these plans. That's why it looks like prophecy. Because some, some time ago, uh, some genius wrote down, uh, you know, he was like, hey, there's going to be a group of people that are organized that will probably try to use a kind of social control method And these are the things to watch for, and it'll be about this time, because that's about how long it takes for human behavior to proliferate in this way, Um, and how long it will take take for humankind, because we have a historical record, don't we? We can watch empires rise and fall. We know approximately how many years, how many cycles it's going to be until the next kingdom is going to rise, and they're going to be able to organize enough of humanity, um, just like the Tower of Babel, you know, is being told, um, to such a degree that they can control pretty much the entire planet's worth of people. And that's really what the prediction's all about. And that's, that's what they have a goal to control mankind. And of course, if they can't do that, right, they can't program us the way that they want us to do it. If, they, if we won't do what they want us to do, then of course they're going to execute plans to initiate a kind of fear-based control. And that includes reducing the population as a cautionary tale. And be like, look, if you don't do what we tell you to do, we just have the power to wipe you out like gods. Um, and that's really what their goal is, is to become godlike. Uh, they they believe this. It's in their religious text. They believe this stuff. It's the same with the Muslims, which actually believe it or not. That gets even scarier because they believe in the quickening as well, that it's their responsibility, um, you know, because of their religious texts to assist in the bringing about of this Armageddon, this Megiddo, um, so that there's a global control because that's what they believe in their texts. 
They believe that their system has to be the only system or it won't be able to succeed. And in a way, they're right. They will bring about a kind of socialist communist utopia. If you read anything about the Quran and, and what their belief system is, that's essentially what it is. It's a kind of Marxism that's, that's modified and there's special rules. Uh, it's, it's all the same thing. Um, but yes, absolutely. There is a organized organization, a group of people. It's rather small. Um, we're talking, you know, less than a hundred thousand people worldwide that are kind of in on the gag. And so, you know, they've prepared and they've got, you know, underground bunkers, if you want to call that. You know, Alex Jones talks a little bit about it. Um, that's, that's what this, this whole thing is about is he's kind of singing it in a different way. He's trying to wake people up in his own way and prepare, you know, some people uh, in, in the event that that does happen, you know, that there there's a resistance force that um, the cabal chance, just can't get away with whatever they want. And uh, this past year, we've actually seen a big change in their plans. Um, I personally believe that they've, they've accounted for this. They, they are aware that this is going to happen, and it's, they're kind of feigning sick, if you will, um, to get us into a very comfortable sense and situation so that they can swing in with a big global problem. I call that the disclosure event. And that's when they'll be able to just come out and say, oh, look, we've got this solution. Let's say uh, their goal is to immediately crash either the economy by um, destroying the petrodollar and cause World War III or to literally cause World War III through a political panic or otherwise. Um, but that's how they would be able to seize control of a large amount of the population because how power really works. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Do you mean disclosure event as in aliens? I mean disclosure as in uh, insert magical sense here, insert magical whatever here. Disclosure is going to be an event that they have planned, okay? No matter what it is, it's going to be disclosure. Because that's what Armageddon means, by the way. That's what it literally, look up, look up the definition. Uh, it's a revealing. And that's what disclosure, that's what their, their, their goal is, is to get this disclosure because that is how you get everyone on the same page. You either get them when they're children and program them from the time that they're born, which they've already worked on. They've done it for generations now. they planned all this. Um, and the second way to do it is to get everybody's attention and get them aligned on a goal. Look at what Kennedy did with the space race. And that's what the cabal is doing. It's a proven model. We know that it works. We have plenty of history to tell us that it does work. Um, and that's their next goal is to get everybody kind of on the same page so they're easy to – we're programmed. We're ready to listen to whatever it is they're going to spit out. And the majority of the population, as it exists right now, will believe hook, line, and sink or whatever they sell them. And that's a problem. You know, that's why we're on this radio broadcast, and I'm trying to inform people and let people know about what's really going on. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Alexandros. I, I feel like myself, I feel like I've been programmed pretty much my whole life. I feel like most things that I've learned – probably are either not true at all or they are half-truths or they've been inverted somehow. It's very troubling because sometimes I have trouble figuring out what exactly is real and what isn't. Yeah. And that's that's where, remember what I talked about at the beginning of the broadcast, um, you know, you probably have some listeners that, that have done some psychedelics and stuff like that and, and have been in the process of seeking truth as part of their life. Um, that's why it's a sacred process. And uh, that's that's one of the biggest problems is, you know, the cabal has designed this. OK, they've generated, they've engineered this. They want people to start waking up because they, they need there to be some conflict. Right. It makes it possible for them to set the stage. It's a, it's a big chess game to them. So the people that are kind of waking up and seeing the truth now we're kind of alarmed. Right. And we're easy to manipulate. Remember how I mentioned about Trump and how he can be very easily manipulated because he's a billionaire. He sees the world from a certain perspective. If they know that there's going to be people waking up, 
um, you know, in advance, then they already have plans for us, you can bet. So they need us to be afraid. They need us to be bashful and kind of, you know, wonder what's really going on and, and be asking questions. Because if we're asking questions and we keep digging, you know, that's how Q got his, that's how I know that Q's garbage. Period. QA9 is a bunch of garbage. Because they need us focused on something that's not important. What's important right now? To act. To be informing other people. To start moving forward with the second renaissance so we can take the capture, the attention and the focus away from what the cabal wants and get it on something that's actually meaningful that will take the attention away, the power away from the cabal. And uh, that's what they don't want us to do. So what is all the rest of this stuff? It's all fluff. You know, it's all fun and games. It's all, it's all part of the, the, the big treasure hunt. You know, what are we, what, what's the goal? Well, the goal is to expose the cabal, but by the time we've exposed them, they will already have had their plan set in motion, and we're just going after the low-hanging fruit. Remember how I mentioned about there's so much information now. How do you get the right information to the right people at the right time? They engineered this situation that we're in right now. You better believe it. Alexandros, what do you think of the situation happening on the Gaza Strip between Israel and the Palestinians? Yeah, so any kind of conflict that you're going to see globally, um, pretty much all modern wars at this point are uh, ideological. They are no longer about money. They're no longer about territory. It's the um, the the uh, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the other the Hatfields and McCoys, right? It's it's this family feud. That this nobody remembers what the real argument was about, or who who stubbed whose toe at whose house. That's what really everything that's going on there is all about. It's it's uh, once again it's also engineered by the cabal. They need this conflict to hide what's really going on. Um, personally, I believe the um, remember how I talked about how the cabal one of their goals is to gain immortality. Um, they can't actually create anything. They don't know how to create. All they can do is steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what they're doing. So in a way, they are like CERN and these other organizations are their little piggy bank projects so that they can figure out the keys to immortality so they can basically become gods. And I believe personally that, you know, with all the stuff with Pedogate and the, um, the human trafficking problems that we're starting to see come to light in Hollywood and these other big organizations, including nonprofits, uh, even, even you're going to see a lot more of it, too, uh, with the ministry, the big, big, big ministries. Uh, that's all going to come out not not very long from now. They're all going to get exposed. But um, the the whole human trafficking thing is not about what you think. It's not about child sacrifice. That, that, I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure there are people doing that. And uh, you know the the psychic vampires that uh, uh, what's his name talks about. You know they're just they're they're wishful thinkers. They're people that have power and they have um, enough time that they can spend money and time on something. Uh, and it, it gives a little bit of meaning to their life, I guess. You know because they, they they live this terrible life. But um, the whole human trafficking thing, the real circle of, of hell, is that they are they're gathering the genetic information of all of the bloodlines on Earth. And they're trying to they're looking for something. And essentially it's like the keys of immortality. They're they're you know taking basically they're it's it there are going to be labs that people find and it's gonna be like the Holocaust, except for kids. And that's what they're gonna find. Oh They're going to find that, you know, literally they have these people plugged up to machines in these, you know, bunkers and stuff underground. They've been studying them like lab rats. It's the real deal. Like, it's it's all going to come out, you know, eventually. But um, that's not going to be part of the cabal's disclosure. That'll be part of whatever we're going to be working on. So. And, boy, yeah, this is, this is very, uh, very deep. Uh, I did want to ask you, 
what about the whole concept or or let me ask you this was there a real Jesus Christ yeah that's a really good question I'm not sure myself but everything that I can figure out okay that I've read um, leads me to believe that it was a story that was meant to be ambiguous however however comma pause for effect okay um I personally, you know, I don't like going into my own personal beliefs, but I personally think that there's something, there's something really, there's way too much detail. There's an unbelievable amount of detail in the Bible. And I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the original Phoenician manuscripts, uh, 20, 22 letter language, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Enoch, all that stuff. Okay. All of it. There's unbelievable amounts of detail going into genealogy, genetics, um, the years, the seasons, it's recording everything so that we literally have it as a historical record. Um, somebody who had knowledge about the origins of language in our genetic code, tetragrammaton, for example, a uh, Greek word. Um, it is a, uh, it is a 14 letter word. No, I'm sorry, it's a, is it 12 letter? T, tetragram, uh, Yes, 14. Yeah, 14 letters. So tetragrammaton is a 14-letter word. Now, here's what's strange about tetragrammaton. It's a Greek word. It means a four-letter word. Now, they needed a way to explain God, right, to the layman in the New Testament. And so they chose, every time you'd see the word L-O-R-D in the New Testament, they replaced it with the word tetragrammaton, which means a four-letter word. Okay? Now, what does it say in John? It says in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God, right? What is God? Word. Okay, so... Make a language, and this is where this gets crazy. Make a language, okay, that is so diverse that it can create anything, um, but it's terse enough that it can be used and understood. And what do we end up with? At least a minimum, each word would have to be a minimum of four letters, which means that there has to be like an alphabet that's large enough to be able to construct, right, these ideas and this symbology that gives birth to explanation of the world and the universe that's been created. And that's, that's the origin of language itself, the origin of origin, in fact, because what is DNA made up of? And now we know it's four letters, right? And uh, it's everything. It literally, it, it all seems to just sort of circle around this drain that's sucking down and leads to this central idea. No matter how you get around it, you can have scientists and so on. Everybody can look into it. it how genius would you have to be? to construct a literary work that lasts the test of time, but has the information encoded in it in such a way that it's so intuitive and focused. What I mean by that is that we're going to go back to the original Phoenician, and um, we'll, we'll look at something just really, really simple. right? Uh, like, uh, in the beginning, God said. In the beginning, God Hello. said. Hello. Yeah, so we say, we say universe, right? One sound. Right, one word, one verse, one song, and so all everything is this this description, right? So how do we describe things? The origin of language, even language itself, was probably a gift in a way. It was like man's original revelation into that self-seeking. Now he didn't have television, he didn't have um, problems of the regular world, and so that's like it's an allegory. It's a way of saying man really existed in the way that it describes in the Bible. And believe it or not, this is provable, and it's logic-based, which is really strange to think of it as that kind of idea. 
but that's really what's going on. So, so logically speaking, if we understand the model of DNA with, with the modern understanding of technology and so on that we have, right, with the modern, everything that we've learned as a culmination, because this Bible, this book, this story, this myth, allowed us to seek nature in such a way that we've reached a, a pinnacle of society where we have an organized thought pattern and we're able to pass on information and describe the universe in a specific way. Are we brainwashed by this book? Or did it assist us to be able to get to this level of society? I call it the message in a bottle uh, situation. So this, this language goes back to Jesus. So why, why is this so special? Okay, so we're going to take a single genetic human being that's perfect, and we're going to break off a piece of his DNA so that he's no longer um, two uh, double helix spirals that are crossed across each other. We're going to make it, we're basically going to make it two and a half or one and a half. And we'll take that other little piece, and it has just enough information to write most of that perfection um, and one more copy. And this is the idea of called the universal constructor, also called the universal Turing uh, machine. Uh, it's talked about by John von Neumann, who's a famous mathematician. He came up with the mutually assured destruction. Listen, if you want to read about a real genius, look up John von Neumann, okay? And that's, that's part of my inspiration in how I'm able to create software and all other cool stuff. But he had this idea of the universal constructor. And so it has just enough information that it can make a copy of itself um, and then be able to make another one, right? And uh, that's basically what Adam gave birth to. He gave birth to Eve. So there's enough genetic information between the male and female to continue proliferation, even if the male is damaged, right? Even if the female is damaged. So um, that's, that's that four-letter word, right? That goes back to that, that those same four letters. That, there's enough diversity in this language, four letters, that allows this to be constructed. So let's say that this is true. Let's postulate that this is true. Over the generations, as the genetics eat in and out of each other and they create these unusual new patterns of proliferation, they will eventually lead back to that original perfect pattern, won't they? There's no way around this. And so when will that culminate? There's a certain amount of time, rather. There's a certain number of proliferations that can be measured from the beginning point, from the start point of where that genetic code stopped and then to the next time when it was going to proliferate. And that's why he was able to predict the birth of Jesus, because they knew by the seasons, uh, by, you know, just by studying nature and what they knew, and about approximately how fast mankind was proliferating, when about this would occur, right? And then there's that prophecy. They knew math. The ancients weren't stupid. They knew about math. Whoever wrote this book is a genius. And here's where it gets interesting, because the line of David, it's literally, the Bible is following this specific genetic line that is a carrier for something that I like to call chimeral cell syndrome. Now, do you know what a chimeral cell is? Alexandros, could I pause you for one sec? We have a caller yeah. waiting on the line. Yeah, man. Let's take it. Caller, are you there? Caller? Caller? Maybe not. Hey, caller, are you there? Oh, I was looking forward to that. Uh, I think he's there. He's just not answering. Hey, caller. I apologize, Alexandros. Uh, please continue. Chimerism. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, chimeral cell. Do you, do you know what a chimeral cell is? Uh, no, actually. Okay. So, there is a very unusual phenomenon that occurs. It's natural. Um, it's called uh, uh, chimerism cell chimerism. 
And if you understand a little bit about um, the birth situation, right, when, when a cell is being formed and it starts to divide, right, uh, via a special kind of mitosis, right, um, there is a, a situation that can occur. It's very rare, and it, it's based in a, a gene, a carrier between the, the filial cells that allow twins to occur, right? And out of those twins, there is a possibility of that twin absorbing the other one and literally having two sets of genetic code in that one human being. And that's called chimeric. Now, I believe that there's actually a marker that is a carrier for a special kind of chimeric, and it can be traced. And it's like a recessive gene trait. And basically what this does is it it turns regular people into uh into King Solomon. So like uh it's it's like I haven't put anything in anything, I just finished it. Yep. Hey Todd, can you hear me? Go ahead, baby. Hey, can you hear me? Oh there we go. The caller's on the air. Todd. Todd, shit, man. You're screwing up my broadcast. Answer me. I apologize, Alexandros. Uh, where? I wasn't outside. How'd he get out there? Uh, anyways, I didn't mean to leave him out there, and I wasn't out there. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, I apologize. I'm sorry. My Skype just no, okay. it, and I cannot figure out how to get him off the line. <laughs> so chimerism, right? So we're looking for this carrier gene that may or may not exist, right? This this Jesus gene that gives call birth has to been child. forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Eight three one five three seven four one seven. Six is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. I don't know what's going on. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I'm so I don't know, sorry. Like I double was, dialed or something. Yeah, weird. I was trying to hang up on the caller, and I, I just kept making uh, it worse because... My Skype, it's it's just it updated and it's all confusing now. I I do apologize. Oh, here we go again. Okay, let's see if this will work. Oh boy. Oh god. Okay, here. Let me try one more time. I will call him back. Let's see if I can't get this to work. Oh my god, these technical issues. Ah. Uh, Let's see. Okay, it should uh, be done. You know, I thought technology was supposed to be convenient, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just can't seem to get my buddy Todd on the line. Hello, Todd, are you there? Hey, buddy, you there? Hello. There you are. Hello. Can you hear us? Yes, I've been trying to call for the last five minutes. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I just enjoyed the program and sound like a very intellectual individual. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Your your kind words humble. Daniel has uh, a very long line of 
guess that would just blow your mind. Um, you're right up there. You're right up there. Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, do, do you know about uh, Adam Kokesh? I've heard the name, yes. He's a Marine. He's running for president next year in the Libertarian Party. Oh, I, I'm, I'm running for president myself, actually. Oh, so you're going to go up against Adam Kokesh? I, I didn't know that he was running. It's good to know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm worried yeah. about Anthony Laciago. That, that's, that's who I'm worried about. That's my biggest concern. You're worried about who, the Santiago? Uh, Andrew D. Basiago is the guy's name. What's he, what's he, where's he, who's he? Um, so he's, um, have you ever heard of the Philadelphia Experiment? Yes. You ever hear of the, uh, I think it's called Project Rainbow that occurred, um, you know, it was the mind control experiments, uh, you know, time travel. Project Rainbow, not Project Rainbow, but yeah, I'm aware of mind control experiments. Yeah, so this guy, Andrew DiBasiago, has written a novel where he talks about his experiences, um, and he's even gone on the Jesse Ventura show, and there's people that believe him. He's a, he's a um, he's an evangelistic Jesus type, um, like a I false can't take the, I can't stand those dudes. Yeah, I can't That's what stand one more so, minute of those dudes. Well, like, go go on the Internet and go to his website. It's Andy2020, right? Um and you look at his website, and it's like all these promises that he's making is about disclosure. It's about, hey, I'm going to reveal all this. I'm going to reveal all this. And that's really his whole platform is that he's going to be. And one more guy yelling, Jesus is the way, yep. and follow me. Can't take it. It's yeah. overload. You can find it everywhere. It's like an electronic transmission that's being just like spread out. That, that that's how they're selling whatever they're selling. Mm-hmm. That's how because they know it'll work. They know that there's enough people yeah, that will it's it's that they'll back on, and they're going to dis- they're going to all these people. I mean, it's the same with the music industry. It's the same with Hollywood. People are going to wake yeah. up and they're just they're going to walk away one day. They're just going to stop. And you know, uh, I'm personally you know what's funny. You know, it's funny. Pardon me, because uh, I didn't catch your name. Uh, you can just call me Alexandros Filth for short. Alexandros Filth. And I've only heard that four times in the last hour. I've been two hours. I've been listening to the show, but I forgot it. I'm drinking some Oregon lager, so pardon me. Oh, no. I, I could definitely tell, man. It sounds like you're having a good time. <laughs> yeah, whenever Daniel has a show, I buy... Uh, yeah, I do Budweiser, but... On occasion, I'll grab like something from the liquor store because in Utah you have to get real liquor from the liquor store. Yeah, it's, it's like that in Virginia too. Yeah, the Mormons control the state, and then they control the liquor stores. And you, no, I don't even want to tell you. It's not even worth it. Todd, do you have any more questions for my guest? Oh no, I just thought it was, the show was so good, and I oh, you're so smart. Um, listen. I can't remember your name. Okay, Todd. Mr. Filth. If you're that messed up, buddy, you should probably call back another day. (laughs) It's not that bad, Daniel. Um, No, it's an incredible show. 
Um, appreciate your time. It's a lot to take in. I know. Um, I, I spit a lot of information really quickly. So do I. That's why I was calling. Um, you know, there's a little click that runs it, right? Little place that runs what? A little click that runs the world. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we know that they're an organized group. We don't necessarily know exactly who they are. Um, we know who some of their organizers and their, their, their close bedfellows are. You know, the Rothschilds, uh, and the World Bank, uh, banking dynasty. Yeah. Um, is yeah, part of it. yeah. But they have, yep. they have organized groups, you know, that are like the little mafias, you know, for example, for example, um, the cartel, while they don't, may not realize it, okay, they're the unwitting bedfellows of the cabal and they're doing the cabal's bidding. And that goes for any organized crime organization in the world. Some of them know who totally. they're working for, and other ones don't. Totally. And uh, I just got to back you up on a few points, man. You're you're dead on. You're dead on on all that. They've got AI systems, algorithms running. The largest corporations in the world control all the information that you say every day, all day long. They've mm-hmm. already set the one world government up. Yep. So incredible, incredible guest, Daniel. He's very smart and glad to have you on our side because we're all out here trying to figure it out too and love Daniel's show and incredible guest, Daniel. All right, buddy. So nice to meet you. Thanks, Todd. Oh, it's a pleasure. Have a good evening, sir. You. All right. That was, that was good. That was good. Yeah, yeah. My buddy Todd, he uh, he's probably had a few too many beers. <laughs> Drink and be merry. You know, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, why don't we go ahead and move on? I did want to talk to you a little bit about – you touched on this earlier, but I wanted to find out a little bit about Moses or Akhenaten. Oh, oh, you know, before we took on the caller, we were talking about um, uh, chimeral cells. Oh, that's okay? right. Yeah, I was about to circle back to that, but I wasn't sure how far along we got there. Yeah, go so, ahead. So think about like a like a container in a container, okay? It's so funny because I'm working on AI, and he even touched on it, you know, when he, when he was speaking about their AI systems. It's, you know, part of the software that I'm writing. And it's so weird because I keep circling around this drain. And um, really, that's what our genetics are. It's like this this universal construction language that can be used to create anything. And it's chemistry. It's the the philosopher's stone. You know, the cabal is looking for it too. Um, that they can use to you know make themselves immortal. They can change their own genetic code at will. Um, they can do it with the power of the mind. They can create a virtual simulation that allows us to do that. Like all their goals wrap around this same central idea. And that's one of the reasons why our organization is working towards the goals that it is, because we want to prevent people from getting, you know, the bad people from getting their hands on this technology, this incredible, amazing technology of mind, um, and manipulating it and using it for evil, terrible things. Um, but going back to talking about Jesus, is, is Jesus really, you know, why, why am I talking about chimerism and chimeral cells? Okay, so let's look at the line of David. Let's go follow it all the way back to Jacob, let's say, for example. Who did Jacob wrestle with? It's so funny because you look this up in the original language. You look it up in the original Hebrew and you look it up in Phoenician and it's, it literally is dancing around this. Who is Jacob wrestling with? He was wrestling with himself. He was wrestling with the son of man. 
who's the son of man? Genetic code. It's our genetics. So inside of a chimeral person, okay, let's say, like a dual personality, if you will, okay? And so that they're literally fighting with their own genetics. Some of his genetics are going to be like a twin, okay, like a twin fighting with his parasitic self, right, and, and taking all the best stuff from it in the same way that Jacob was wrestling with himself. And he was the carrier of this gene, and so it followed his matrilineal or his patrilineal line. And that's how Mary ended up with it. So Mary gave birth, okay, and this is the crazy part, gave birth to her um, her own twin, her own absorbed twin. And that would be a real medical miracle, and it, believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, it is scientifically plausible, 100%. Yeah, that's a fascinating take. So, do I believe in Jesus? Um I believe that it is up to each individual person to seek the truth. That's what I believe. And I'm not going to try to convince you one way or the other. I think you should do your own research and you should read. You should think about it. Give it a lot of thought because the book is there for a good reason. It's meant to make us think. And we're supposed to. We've been designed to think. My, my personal belief. But going back to Moses, Moses Nakanaten. Okay. So let's, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Okay. Before Jesus, um, <coughs> there is, a, uh, a civilization that came along after the Tower of Babel, okay, after the uh, the Great Flood, right? They covered the earth, uh, or cataclysm, if you want to call it a cataclysm. It doesn't have to be a flood. It could be anything. We do know historically it happened. This is scientifically irrefutable. Everybody will tell you, yep, the, there was a big die-off. Um, it happened. A bunch of humans died too, uh, no matter what it was. And after that die-off, humankind started to congregate again, right? That's what we do. We start organizing. So how do we organize? Well, we organize using a language. And that language was new. It was something different. And it evolved in very different ways over the generations, didn't it? Even though it came from a common mother tongue. We, all, we, can, we can recognize that scientifically and mathematically as well, that all these languages have this common thread, right? So um, if, if you think about a control system, Programming, just like programming a computer with a language, okay? Humans are like a kind of computer. And so we took the kids, right? All of these traditions, it's not just the language itself, but the traditions that came with it that allowed us to create these organized societies. And so these were a little bit of leftover bits from, you know, uh, the farmers and the people that actually survived this great cataclysm and what they passed on to their progeny. So uh, you get to you get to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are resettling this area after the cataclysm that was once already settled by probably an extremely advanced civilization. If I can if I can make even a, a close guess during the Babel period, and so when they resettled in this area, of course it worked out really well because the machines were still working, they still operated to some degree, and they made they made things work properly. That's the reason why the Nile flows the opposite direction. Because the, the pyramid itself is a kind of machine. It's performing a function, and it still is. It still works to, to a very much lesser degree than it once did. But when it failed, when it failed, it actually caused a snapback in nature. And Akhenaten was smart enough, okay, to realize what was going on. Now, how did he come to this conclusion? I believe, personally, that through studying um, the, the information at the library, because he was born very, very differently. He was not the official son of Pharaoh. He was adopted, which is true of Akhenaten. 
right? He wasn't the true son of Pharaoh, but he was considered the family of Pharaoh. He might as well have been the son for all intents and purposes. So the same expectations, because he doesn't have to worry about ascending to the throne, the same expectations are not placed on, on our friend Akhenaten Moses that they would have been placed on the, the prince, um, Thutmose, that would have been ascending to the throne. So his education is going to be very different. And so Moses, Akhenaten, had an opportunity to travel and see the world like, like Solomon and gain all this knowledge and wisdom. And because he had a basis in education, it gave him a huge leg up over all these slaves. So think of the slaves in Egypt, the Jewish slaves, as organized monkeys. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but realistically, that's what human slaves are. When they've been bred generation after generation to not be educated, um, to just know enough to get by in their own language just so they can do enough business so that they can know what to be told to do, and then they go do it, right? And, of course, they've got a bed to go home to every single day. They don't know any different lifestyles, so they don't complain. Um, they get three hots and a cot, even though it's not as much as their, their Egyptian brethren. Um, and so, you know, they're just very efficient uh, slave organized robots. They're, they're an organized robot system. And that's essentially what Moses and Akhenaten was opposed to. He saw this and he was like, this isn't right. Human beings are more than this. And I would know. I lived a life. You know, I saw all these things. I learned all these things. So he took that knowledge and he was like, this came from somewhere. And he was trying to put all the pieces together. He realized, okay, this is, this is from what I take from the story. He realized that not only was he of these people, but he had a responsibility, a greater responsibility to save them from their plight. And how would he do that? And so he understood about all these season changes and all the information is that he began to form a plan on how to basically take back and threaten because you cannot control the weather. But if you have the right information, you can predict the weather. And that's exactly what Moses did. That's what Akhenaten did. He understood the seasons and he saw things that happened before. He learned things about these ancient civilizations and how there would be a snapback in nature because of that because of that cataclysm that they caused, right, because of their use of this technology, um, that uh, he would be able to predict this, right? And he's like, guess what? If you don't let my people go, some bad shit's going to go down. And he was able to very, very accurately predict this. He would be compared probably, if you were to look this up, um, there's a gentleman that grew up in Japan. His name was Abe Noseime. You can look him up. Um, he was a, a kind of a prophet, um, one of those, you know, Jesus types. And so he made all these predictions about the weather and births and all these things. And it was because of his level of knowledge and understanding of how the world operated under normal, natural behavioral phenomena that he was able to make these incredibly accurate predictions and, and say these things that were very profound. And so Moses Akhenaten was the same kind of intellectual. He saw the world in the same kind of way because that was his education. He wasn't he wasn't bound by the education that normally would be given by the priest class um, to the royal class because there was no need for the royal class to know certain things. So he took this with him. And he also realized that even after he saved the people, that it was going to be a hard road because they went from something where they had everything provided for them and all they had to do is just do what the Egyptians told them. And they get three hots and a cot every day, so they're satisfied. Well, now he's dealing with a, with a, a, a monkey class, you know, human worker team that he, you know, basically gathers and takes out into the desert. So why do, why do they wander around in the desert for 40 years? You know why? Because he needed to reprogram them for a couple of generations. That's what took him 40 years. He knew that they wouldn't be successful if they couldn't be organized. And the only way to organize everybody is to get them all on the same page and have the first generation, right, and the second generation start already by speaking and knowing the language. 
And so he united them with one language that he liked, and it happened to be Phoenician. And he's like, I'm just going to kind of redraw it a little bit, and it'll, it'll make sense for everybody, and it'll be really easy because it's, it's base 11. Um, you know, it has all these special mathematic properties, which means that the people are going to be smart because they already know mathematics, right, as soon as they learn the language. And it's true because their, their language is very mathematically sound. It's, uh, um, what, what do they call it? There's a term for it. Um, I'm not grammatica. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue in this case, but essentially it means that their, 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 their syntax is very mathematically structurally sound which is one of the basis of making a good language. And there's these little keys, these little pieces of all the languages that actually came from Babel that we can learn from. But you know, that's, that's, a, that's another subject for another time. But Akhenaten, <clears throat> that's how he gathered and organized all these people. And that's also how there was able to be a prediction made, right, about certain people of this belief. And because of their behavior, it would be relatively easy to be able to predict certain things that these people were going to do because of the structure of their language, because of their general behavior. Um, and of course, that's why the Bible is so specific about very, very special details about these people. And it tells about their birth dates and who their fathers and their children were and about how long they lived. What are they doing? Hey, guess what, guys? We're talking about genetics, right? So we're looking at the alleles and these traits that are being passed down and we're looking at dominant and recessant genes, right? If you look at their names, they're actually named for their ability, for their capabilities. Check it out. It's a real thing. And so all of this is a historical record to teach them about genetics. So what do you think they're doing? They're, they're, they're all getting into genetic research. They're trying to figure out exactly what, it, what is the, the, the secret to life and the book of life and all this stuff. And whose name is written in the book of life. So, like, genetics is this whole other um, sub-feature of language itself in the Bible. And so it's also part of their brainwashing, right? So it's part of their belief system. But there's two ways to look at this coin. There's there's the way to look at it as a control system, right? And then there's a way to look at it as a way to help mankind. And that is the dichotomy that we're facing right now with the cabal. Because probably about 50% of the world, if they knew what we're talking about right now, they're going to say, well, look, let's do the right thing. We don't have to do eugenics, right? We can learn about, you know, genetic information and we can use it to help people and cure cancer and, and do all these great things. And yes, that's a wonderful thing. But we also have to assess, right, and keep going back to the central theme, whether or not technology will lead to progress or regression. And we're not facing these facts. We're not talking about it. Uh, and this is what the, the cabal needs. They need, us, they need us to be divided over these things so that we're much easier to control and so that they just can kind of slip in and then they get what they want. because. Then we do all their hard research for them. We figure out the keys to heaven. And so then, you know, they just sweep in and they steal everything, just like they've done so many times before. But uh, talking about Moses and Akhenaten. So he started this whole civilization of people, and then he made sure that there were instructions that were written to make sure to avoid certain pitfalls in the future. That's really what I believe the Bible is, is, is pointing to, and that's probably what we're going we're gonna to get real close to discovering um, after the... Uh, the Vatican finishes archiving everything uh, and putting that into the public domain because they're not done with that. And once that happens, that's going to be like their disclosure. And uh, it's so much information. Once again, people are going to be researching this stuff. And how long is it going to take human beings to research this? People have to lay eyes on it. They have to write about it. And then people have to – it has to be wide enough spread that people are reading about it. And, it. and if that's the case, then we're all going to be focused and all of our attention is going to be on this instead of on what are they doing while we're distracted reading this junk. 
you know, and so there's a way to move forward and avoid all that, right? And so it means not paying attention to their little their little scheme, their little their little get together. And it's okay. There's going to be people that are going to want to research it, and that's fine. That's fantastic. But um, we don't need 90% of humanity doing that. Certainly not. I think that the most important thing, if if you can learn anything from what Moses tried to leave behind, uh, the most important thing for us to focus on is to get off planet. Is to absolutely figure out a way to to leave. And uh, you know they they talk. You want to talk about the rapture? You want to talk about anything of the 144,000? Whatever you want to talk about. Okay. It's there's there's going to be a, a group of people that are going to be opposed. And however many they are, and once again, it's a prediction. That doesn't mean it's going to be an exact number, right? So uh, he can get pretty close, but he's not going to be able to, to determine certain things, certain human behaviors, because he's not going to know how things have changed. He doesn't know all the details, right? And it's the same thing with uh, anybody who makes any kind of predictions about the future and, and the future of human behavior. Even if you have perfect information, the system is still flawed, right? Because there's things that you can't really know that some human is going to do or another. So I believe that whole thing about Akhenaten is like um, his his wisdom, his revelation about everything that he learned as like a wise great king, like a Melchizedek type, uh, a, you know, a high priest, because essentially that's what he was. That's why he had to have his brother speak for him. You know, look this up uh, in Exodus. Uh, and so, you know, he had Aaron. Um, do certain things for him because he didn't know how to put his words in such a way that people could understand because he'd studied the world in a very different way and he had a lot of information and he's thinking through all this stuff and trying to figure out how to pass it on in the quickest, most efficient way. And it's very stressful. I, I feel um, that I'm in a very similar position because I'm doing these things, but I also have to spend a lot of my time teaching, um, doing stuff like this. It's very important that I can get this information out in a succinct, beautiful and understandable way. Uh, and I'm going to be doing this a lot, and it's going to be a really important thing that I'm going to have to do probably for the rest of my life. And that means that it takes time away from my ability to do other things, and that's very stressful because I know that there are other important duties that I have to perform. And so in that same way, any leader, you could say it's the Damocles curse, um, that's in a position like this, like Moses Akhenaten was, that has sufficient knowledge, that responsibility that comes with it, is uh, one of the reasons why the candle kind of burns out faster because it's that stressor. And that stress is driving you to perform, um, which is a really remarkable thing. It's like a superpower, but at the same time, you can only perform so well for so long, and then eventually you burn out. Or uh, in the example of John von Neumann, he died at 53. Yeah, he was a super genius, and he did all these amazing things, and he made all these huge contributions, um, but, you know, he, he burned out quick. You know, Tesla was trying to figure out a way um, to live a kind of natural life um, you know, and be uh, self, you know, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, and use very little resources, right? Um, and that eventually led him uh, to live, you know, almost emaciated and starving. He was living off of like cream and honey. You know, he believed that those were like perfect foods. It's, it's strange. He wrote about it. Uh, and Moses, you know, of course, was working on something very different in the priestly class. You know, talking about um, fasting and these special behaviors that you would exhibit, a way to sustain the body. Um, without degrading the uh, the genetic telomeres, which are really the monoatomic elements that are necessary to support and sustain life, it's one of the one of the things, one of the little secrets about the Bible um, that that kind of leads towards an immortality goal or ability. And so the the proof of that, of course, is in the priestly behaviors and the things that are involved with the um, uh, the traditions that he started. 
all of the stuff with the breastplate with the different stones. The different stones have different properties. They're made of these different metals. And, of course, they're interacting with gold and other things in the breastplate. So there's, there's some real science behind this stuff. Um, that how would he have known that? Well, of course, that goes back to, okay, he didn't have to learn the same thing. He took it upon himself to go out and seek this knowledge, and he was all over the world, and he had the ability, the riches, right, to do it. And, of course, he wasn't expected to ascend to the throne. So all of these things kind of circle back around. They, they eat back into themselves. But Moses Akhenaten is this incredible, whether he existed or not, another Jesus-type historical figure. And so it's, it's more or less like a myth that holds some important information to tell us about our own future if we don't choose to change. And that's really the central idea behind the Bible is it's the, the, the message in a bottle isn't just a way to say, this is how you restart civilization from scratch um, and make a successful group of people that can have free will. Or uh, if you look at it the other way, it's saying, uh, if you don't do it right, this is going to be the result. Uh, that there's going to be disastrous consequences. And so there's a there's an in-between, too, isn't there? And that's where we're at. We're at a place where we can kind of say, well, wait a minute, we don't accept this reality. Uh, either one of them, we can kind of pave our own path. Any possibility exists if, if you take the real meaning of the Bible, the literal meaning of the Bible, is that any possibility exists, uh, and you can pave your own path to do anything. But you have to be able to um, motivate the people enough sufficiently to be able to be agreeable. And that's not something that's easy to do. And... You know, there's only so much time. If you can pull it off, what it means is that there's going to be a cautionary tale situation. And now that becomes part of that new message in a bottle that goes to the next generation, right? And so that's how you, that's how you can make things better for the next generation. That's part of that legacy. And that's the real, if you, if you want to say it, the real lesson, the real wisdom behind Moses and Akhenaten and everything that he left behind. And it's really fascinating that the more you study it, the more you get into it, the more it's, it's convincing that you're like, okay, so what, what is the real origin of origin? You know, where did the language really come from? Who said, oh, and then decided this is, oh, this is a good idea. Let, let me pass this on. This is some really cool knowledge right here. And how do, I, how do I teach it to these other guys so that it means the same thing? And then to say and take that to the next step. I mean, how many generations did it take? How many iterations did it take if it started from ground zero? And how, indeed, did it start from ground zero? So um, whether whether you know, God exists or not, whether Jesus exists or not, there is some incredible, very focused knowledge that has come through this portal that is absolutely unquestionable. And it's not just through the Bible itself, it's through all these religious texts. 